you, Chuck, for your um, sweet New Year's, uh, Christmas Day prayer and wonderful message on Christmas Day. We appreciate that. (laughs) So in years past, at, at least for me at this time of the year, I would have compiled my New Year's resolutions. Uh, have you done that? Do you still do that? Intentions. <laughs> Intentions, that's a good word. Um, a few years ago, I gave up on my New Year's resolutions, well, because mostly I, I didn't keep them. Uh, you know, it was what I was going to do, what I was going to achieve, what I was going to accomplish, and um, gave that up. But this year, the word resolutions come back to me in a fresh way, and I'm going to keep it. Uh, First of all, I'm learning to begin with my desires. Uh, What do I really long for? What do I really want to become, to remember, to realign with, to recover, uh, to receive? I start with that, and then I write those down, and then I can keep coming back to that, not my list of what to do all through the year, because I'm coming back to my heart. And I was also reminded then that resolution can refer you know, to the number of pixels in an image or the number of dots in a, in a printer printout. And so this number um, describes the sharpness or the clarity of the image, right? So a better resolution can help us to see better. And I want to see better and more, and I want to learn to see. So the question then is, how will I form my life and practices to support this resolution for better resolution? So I'm sitting with that question. Along with that, I'm holding on to last year's focus for me. I want to realize my connected self, the oneness and communion with God and others that truly is that I've purposed to practice ways to help me become more aware of it and also to enjoy this connectedness with all people. So how many ways can I meet with God and others? We're blessed this morning to have Holy Communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, whatever you name it. For me, this sacred feast is a time for seeing, and it's a time for deep connection, and we're all invited to come. Pray with me. Lord God, we desire that we would gaze at you in a hundred places and that you would be known to us in a thousand ways. We offer this hour for you to come to us and steady us for this year's journey. No matter where life takes us, you will make known to us the path of life. You will fill us with joy in your presence. Let this season be filled with life and light and love. We are all in need of it. Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, Nancy, you ought to write a book. Um, That was really good, and I want to read that over again this week several times. Um, I'm going to be reading, let me begin with this. Ellen Styler's memorial service is going to be at Capo Beach Church the 20th at 4 o'clock. That's a Friday, and uh, you're welcome to come. There will be a reception following. So if you didn't get that, ask Nancy or myself afterwards, and we'll uh, remind you of the time and the date. Um, I'm going to be reading three different, from three different places in Matthew's Gospel, and here's where I begin. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then also in uh, Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Okay, here we are again together after a two-week break. Uh, Now it's back to school. And uh, we're going to begin this new year, as Nancy said, with communion. The, it's the Christian ritual of bread and wine. And in 1 Corinthians 10.16, Paul describes the ritual like this. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? That's where Nancy mentioned there several ways to refer to this. It's the Lord's Supper, it's Eucharist in the high church, it's communion, uh, typically in the free church. But this is where we get the word communion. And also the word Eucharist comes from the same passage. It's, it's translated uh, blessing here, Eucharisto. But the, the point is, is that what happens when we eat the bread and drink from the cup is we share a common union with God through Jesus. We share a common union with each other through Jesus. That's communion, a common union. And we are joined to to each other as we're joined to God. It's all very spiritual and, and wonderful and lovely, but we want to be aware of what's happening while we're doing this. We want to have that, that spiritual awareness and experience. When we receive communion, we are renewing our relationship with God. And it just seems like the right thing to do at the beginning of the year. We go straight to God and we set our course for the coming year. And maybe get some resolution in terms of a a clearer view of things. In the verses that I read, Jesus is teaching on prayer and on, I'm sorry, um, what does he teach on? On love and prayer and peace. And there's also a sub-theme in each lesson. He says, Don't be like the Gentiles, which is ironic because I think most of us here today are Gentiles. Don't be like the Gentiles. And um, 
why does Jesus pick on the Gentiles these three times? Now, I, I caught this yesterday in my morning reading, and I have to say, it hit me pretty hard. I, I thought, oh, there's, there's something here. And, and then I remembered reading that two previous times in Matthew. He, he picks on the Gentiles. Why? It's not that the Gentiles were especially evil. Um, there are many good people, many brilliant people, uh, many Gentile philosophers and wisdom teachers and, uh, and teachers of good. But they did not know the God of Abraham. They did not know the God who had revealed himself in the Hebrew scriptures through the prophets. They did not know the God whom Jesus referred to as his father and taught us to pray to him as our father. They lived by the light that they had, but it was not up to the divine standard. And Jesus says, they are inadequate examples for you. Don't live like them. The third time that Jesus made this negative comparison to the Gentiles, I was struck by the relevance of what he was saying. Um, and the reason for that may be that I've also been reading a book by Leo Tolstoy, and don't get impressed with that because it's a very small book and, and it's an easy read. It's like practically written for children. Um, but it's entitled A Confession. Before his 20th birthday, uh, Tolstoy decided that he didn't believe in God. Uh, definitely not the God of the Russian Orthodox Church that he knew. It all just seemed like fairy tale to him. Later on, after winning financial success as a noted thinker and teacher and writer, uh, having a family and children that he loved deeply, he fell into a deep depression. So it can happen to anybody, <laughs> even brilliant people. Uh, nothing mattered to him anymore. Nothing brought him any joy. If you know anything about depression, it just sucks the emotional energy out of you. I've been with, with people one time, uh, friends, we just happened to be at the beach as the sun was setting, and they're all, ooh, and ah. It was obvious that they were having feelings in response to the beauty of the sunset. And I was standing there looking at the same beautiful thing. I acknowledged it was beautiful. I felt nothing. I felt nothing of what they were feeling. The, the, and I'll, I'll put it this way because I understand this better now. The dopamine receptors in my prefrontal cortex were not getting dopamine for some reason. And that is a pleasure chemical. It's the, uh, pardon the expression, sex, drugs, and rock and roll chemical you know, for the body. And so without that, I wasn't capable of the feelings others were feeling. This is, he, he came to some kind of situation like this where he was very depressed. And the way he faced it, first of all, he thought of suicide. And what he did is whatever rope he had around the house, he had it hidden so he wouldn't know how to access it. Um, he decided not to go hunting anymore. He didn't want to be that close to a, a weapon that could end his life instantly because he might just impulsively pull the trigger. And again, 
when you're in the deep throes of depression, impulsivity is not unlikely because it can get so deep. You have the sense of, I can't do this anymore. I can't do another day of this. I can't do another hour of this. I, you know, I, I can't stand this anymore. So what he did, uh, how, how he faced his depression, is he started looking for a meaning to life. You know, uh, here I have achieved fame and fortune. I have a family that I love, but I don't know what the point of it is. He, he lost touch with that. And he turned first to science. That was, he, he decided that was a dead end. And of course, because biology will tell us wonderful things about human life, animal life, Astronomy will tell us wonderful things. Astrophysics will tell us wonderful things about the universe we live in. But nothing of our material universe speaks to us of life's meaning. Nothing tells us why we're here, why we happen to be alive, why this planet of carbon units crawling around on its surface even exists. And, and science at its best, and, and the same was true in Tolstoy's time as today, you think you know, 100, 200 years would make a big difference. Didn't make that much difference. Um, science said, we, we don't have answers for those questions. And the universe doesn't communicate answers to those questions. It doesn't address why you're here. It just says you're here, and this is probably how you came to be here. So um, he then turned to philosophy, and I'd say philosophy-religion, and somehow he found the dreariest, bleakest quotes uh, among all the philosophers uh, and, and religions that he consulted. Uh, first, there was Socrates, who basically said, uh, there's no meaning to life. Death is the spirit's escape from this body and from this world uh, into whatever might lie beyond, maybe a land, of, a, a, a world of perfect forms. Uh, Schopenhauer, if you know anything about him, his philosophy was the philosophy of pessimism. He's one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I was with a friend one time. We had taken a, a, a scuba course, and we had our first ocean water, which is called open dive. And on our way there, we're going together. We're going to meet with a group. On our way there, we're listening to the radio, and we intentionally look for... Um, the weather forecast, and water visibility. And they said visibility today is between 10 and 20 feet. And when we arrived and, and got with the group, someone said, anyone know what visibility is today? And at the same time, my optimistic friend said, 20 feet. I said, 10 feet. <laughs> it's between 10, he went to the high end, I went to the low end. It's like where you go when you're a pessimist. So Schopenhauer, the philosopher of pessimism, and then he quotes Solomon, or you know, he says, whoever wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. And, and Solomon drives that point home. In fact, he has like three, I think two or three long paragraphs quoting Ecclesiastes and its disparaging look at life. There's just no meaning to it. We're just here. And then his last quote is from the Buddha, which is, um, again, we have to get out of the nothingness of this life. We have to transcend it 
in order to get anywhere because there's no meaning in, in what we see around us you know, in the world. Tolstoy says, not finding an explanation in science, I began to seek for it in life, hoping to find, among, hoping to find it among the people around me. And I began to observe how the people around me, people like myself, lived and what their attitude was to this question, which had brought me to despair. And that hit me like thunder and lightning. Immediately, I realized that's what most of us do. That, I mean, the, the philosophic or religious or spiritual quest for life's meaning can lead us to the despair of the philosophers or the religious, and, and we can conclude um, I can't find it in anything that's available to me. But what about other people? Um, they seem to go around like life has a meaning and a purpose. And so here's what I observed young, among young families. Because um, two days a week, I'm driving my grandkids to school and from school. And so I see all these young parents with, with small children. And here's what I observe. They don't know the meaning of their lives. They get up in the morning and they engage in the morning routine and rituals. They get dressed, they eat breakfast, they get the kids ready for school, and then they begin their, their own daily chores, whether that's at home or in office, whatever. And they are endlessly repeating those daily chores without knowing the meaning of it all. And they're looking at other people like themselves and saying, well, what meaning have they found in life? What's important to them? And they either compare themselves to others or they judge themselves by not keeping up with others. Well, I should have an income like that person's. Well, I should have a spouse that looks like that person's. And, and they either set goals for themselves or they just judge themselves, judge and condemn themselves. Looking at others their age, they think they need to own a home. They own a home. I'm the same age, maybe a little bit older. I don't own a home yet. They think they need to own a new car, uh, a fancy new car. And there's a big difference between driving a Honda and driving an Audi in their mind, in their imagination. Because we're given that impression. The Audi is a status car. The Honda is an every, every person car. They push their children to get good grades. They push them into team sports because they think this is the, the best thing they can do for their children. To give them an edge in life. To give them an edge in the meaningless life they're living, but maybe just a little bit above the level of, of their own lives. They keep up with the latest technology because their friends have the most recent iPhones or, or smartphones or whatever. And they draw these conclusions by observing the lifestyles of their peers. 
we ought to be able to go on a three-month vacation to Europe. We ought to be able to have what, what they have. They are caught in the stampede of the herd. They have no idea what they're running from or running to or even why they are running. But everyone is running, so they're running to keep up, to stay with the herd. They run because everyone is running, and if there's any meaning to it, they have no idea what it may be. You just run. Maybe they assume that this mindless running will eventually bring them to meaning. I mean, don't we have a lot of goals in front of us, you know, a lot of carrots held in front of us? Well, you know, if I, if I work hard enough, I'll get there, I'll get the carrot. And if that's the case, if, if they're thinking, well, someday the meaning will come, it's very, very sad, and they're destined to be disappointed. Uh, some of you have heard of Jordan Peterson. Yeah, he's a well-known uh, psychologist, clinical psychologist, professor of psychology, um, and now uh, podcast personality. He's become very popular. He's a Canadian, so we can forgive him for that. But uh, he, said, he, he went through um, a severe life crisis for a couple of years. I mean, he, he got to this place of fame, but he was a nervous wreck at the same time. His wife had a life-threatening illness, and he collapsed. After coming back from that, he began writing about it. And one of the things that he, he decided was, in a crisis, the inevitable suffering that life entails can rapidly make a mockery of the idea that happiness is the proper pursuit of the individual. Deeper meaning is required. So if, if, if everything is, you know, I've got to pursue happiness, he says that's not enough to sustain a life. A deeper meaning than that is required. Jesus tells us, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't keep up with the Joneses. Don't take your cues from the world around you. Don't ask the blind to take your hand and guide you. Don't ask the world to give your life a meaning. The world cannot teach you what it does not know or give you what it does not have. However, the world is clever enough to lie to us. So if you want to find life's meaning, then you need to go on this diet. You need to find the tricks that, that these surgeons know. Have you ever seen those ads where it's like, you know, this is a trick that no one tells you of how you can cure wrinkles. Um, wow, okay, I've got to take that vitamin or whatever it is. I mean, the, the world can lie to us. It can make promises it cannot keep or offer artificial meaning to life, but it's a meaning that's too shallow to support the human soul. It doesn't go deep enough. If we don't borrow meaning from the lives of others, if we don't do as the Gentiles, then where are we to look for meaning? Okay, 
The part where Jesus says, um, don't be anxious, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What clothes shall we wear? He says, because the Gentiles worry about all that stuff. Don't be like them. He goes on to say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. All these things like meaning. Now, it's possible that the specific meaning of your life and the specific meaning of my life is hidden from us, that it's actually a mystery and that we won't know it till we get to the end of it. And I'm talking about the Christian's life. Why am I here? I may not know it. I know that we won't find it by looking for it, but I think that we find it by living it. We live the meaning of our lives. So Paul says, therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. And he's talking not only about pronouncing judgment on others, but judgment on ourselves too, because he'll say, I don't even judge myself. He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Then each one will see, that was the meaning of my life. And what was I doing? Well, the general meaning of the Christian life is righteousness. I, I can tell you, I don't know the specific meaning of my life or your life, But the general meaning of all Christian life is righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Doing what is right according to the teaching of Jesus, which first and foremost is loving God with all your heart and strength and mind and loving your neighbor the way you want to be loved. If I say, love your neighbor as yourself, someone's going to say, yeah, so if you don't love yourself, how can you love your neighbor? I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he assumes we do love ourselves, as Paul does in Ephesians 5, where he says, no man hates his own body. He, He loves it and cherishes it, and he needs to treat his wife the same way. In other words, there's something, there's a basic self centeredness in us, and even the person like myself who hates my life, loves it at the same time. And I wouldn't hate it if I didn't have greater expectations for it than what I'm living. If I were a different person, you know, I, you know, I can imagine myself happy uh, rather than depressed. Why are you even listening to me? <laughs> You're thinking, this guy is, I don't want to follow this guy. Um, Okay, walk us into the valley of the shadow of death. Great. You know, <laughs> you know teach us how to live the life of Job, uh, which is, you know, s- surviving all the crap that comes at you, uh, not just, you know, living under it. But we love others the way we want to be loved or we like to be loved. What if I was in that guy's situation? If I were in that guy's situation, what would I... There's nobody here if you're looking at <laughs> This is make-believe. I do a lot of that. But, um, what would I want if I were outside the, the quickie mart 
begging for money. What would I want? And I'd want someone to give me enough money to buy me some hard liquor so I can stay warm tonight. I mean, the ten- temperatures drop to below 45 or 40. I would want to be loved generously. So, you know, so I don't know where we're going to find it, where we're going to bump into it next. It's not far away because there are others here. How do they want to be loved? How do I want to be loved, loving each other in, in those ways? So, so New Year's resolution. I don't do New Year's resolution. Um, if someone said intention. Yeah, Alex, yeah. New, New Year's intention. That's <laughs> good. Well, I intend. Um, and, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? <laughs> that just comes to mind. Um, so but the first thing, what I want to do, because I want to live the meaning of my life, is I want to seek first every morning the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I want to start by going to God and, and seeking this alternate reality it's not bounded with all the material constrictions and, and devices and temptations. His kingdom, I'm going to seek his kingdom rather than building my own little kingdom. Or, or trying to build a Christian nation kingdom. I want, you know, I want to seek the kingdom that already is and has come to us through Jesus and comes to us in Jesus every day. I want to seek his righteousness that is to be right with God, which is by trusting him primarily, and then right with, with others by God's standard. Because I can have a very low standard sometimes. And beginning my, my mornings this way, I'm going to come to the meaning of my life. Would you stand with me, please? Lord Jesus, we welcome your presence here with us now. May we see your hands, hear your voice saying, this is my body broken for you. Remember me. This cup is the blood of the new covenant that I'm making with you. Remember me. And may we call to mind your love your cross, your abandonment by the Father, your forsakenness, your resurrection, your forgiveness for all of us disciples who ran from you, your daily support now to the new life that comes to us by observing moments like this. Make this real to us, Lord Jesus. 
Paul says that in the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which was broken for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which is poured out for you. Paul said, as often as we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we preach the Lord's death until he returns. So here we are between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. And we're connected to both by this meal in which he is present to us in the here and now. So I'm going to invite you as we are in our quiet prayer, as you feel prompted, as, as you want to, to come up here and take bread and take a cup. Um, if you like, you can just receive it right here or you can take it back to your seat and hold on to it for a moment and have whatever business with Jesus that you need to conduct. By the way, every single person here is welcome to this. Nobody is excluded for any reason. And you can think to yourself, I'm not worthy. Oh, you're the only one here today not worthy. <laughs> uh, it's not like that at all. None of us are worthy, and it's not about that. This is, this is for people who aren't worthy, for people in need of God's touch. And that's what we're going to receive now. So uh, you may be seated. Be in silent prayer until you feel ready, and then come and receive.
stand one more time. You know, in the ancient Christian tradition, every Sunday is Easter. Every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's how we came to, to meet on Sundays. So may we feel the resurrection life of Jesus in us this week, that, that extra energy beyond what our body produces. May we sense him living around us and with us and in us. If our eyes were open today, we'd see miracles in this room right now. May we have faith to see miracles in the lives of others this coming week. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.